Welcome to ABC, Abergavenny Baptist Church, building faith and friendship. You are listening to a sermon series through the final chapters of Mark's Gospel, entitled A Saviour's Love. We have two shortish readings today. The first one is Mark chapter 15, verses 42 to 47, and it's headed The Burial of Jesus. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of of Jesus, saw where he was laid. And the other reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 to 23. This is headed various laws. If a man guilty of a capital offence is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Amen. Palm Sunday. I've preached often on Palm Sunday and I must confess I think the sermon is very similar each time, obviously considering Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowds shouting, Hosanna. But <laughs> I'm a man under orders. <laughs> we are working our way through Mark's Gospel. And last week, if you were with us, we considered Christ's crucifixion on the cross. And so today, if you are listening carefully to what Jill was reading to us, we're thinking about the burial of Jesus. Something I don't think I've directly preached on before. Because we run swiftly on from Palm Sunday... If you're with us next Thursday, then we'll be considering, no doubt, the Last Supper, those momentum events in the upper room. Then on Friday, if you join us for our Good Friday Walk of Witness, no doubt we'll be considering the crucifixion again. And then next Sunday, as you know, we'll be celebrating the resurrection of Christ and this cross will be gloriously decorated with flowers. So the burial gets overlooked. So this is a glorious opportunity just for a few moments to consider its significance. And the first thing we notice is it's a clash of cultures. Rome against the Jews. Pilate is the Roman in charge. He ordered the crucifixion and now he's being asked to release the body by one Joseph of Arimathea. So he can be buried according to Jewish custom and practice. So first of all, of course, Pilate must satisfy himself that Jesus is indeed dead. So he calls for the centurion. 
The one who was in charge of the crucifixion. The one who we heard last week proclaim Jesus as the Son of God. A very experienced Roman soldier. No doubt in charge of many crucifixions down through the years. And he calls him in because Pilate is surprised that this is only three in the afternoon. Is Jesus already dead? And he calls in the centurion and the centurion confirms that Jesus is dead. Now that's important to us. Over the years there have been many conspiracy theories that Jesus didn't actually die. He might have been unconscious. There might have been no semblance of life. But the reality was he wasn't dead. This centurion, he's an experienced Roman officer. He knows when somebody's dead. And if he tells Pilate that Jesus is dead, then he's dead. No doubt. Let's put that one firmly to bed. Jesus is dead. So Pilate agrees. He will release the body. Now, this goes totally against Roman custom and practice. The crucified, once they've been hanging there on the cross, would normally take a lot longer to die. That'd be the first thing. And secondly, they'd be left there hanging to die. Mike explained to us last week, the crucifixion was intended to be cruel. It was intended to show to the populace, this is what happens to traitors. And so the example of the dead body would be left just to remind people that's your fate too if you dare defy the power of the emperor. So the Romans were never in a hurry to take a body off the cross. Let the lesson be learnt the hard way. So why did Pilate agree to this request if it went against their normal rules and normal practice? I think the answer can be found back in the previous chapter, chapter 15, where we see Pilate asking the question, but what's this man done? He knows somebody's innocent when he sees him. Jesus was obviously innocent. And he found himself caught on the horns of dilemma. Well, how about Barabbas then? Oh yes, yes, you can release Barabbas. Crucified Jesus. And he found himself on this unseemly swap for a known rebel for Jesus. So Pilate knows he's been used by the high priests. And I don't know about you, but nobody likes being, feel they're being used. And so Pilate's now has an opportunity to, in a small way, redress the situation. He knows an innocent man has died. So why cannot he have a decent burial? And Joseph comes along, not just with a request, but also with a justification. And Jill read to us from Deuteronomy, of how it says there quite clearly that anyone hung on a tree and a wooden cross counts as much as a tree as anything else does, that that person should be buried and buried before nightfall. That was the Jewish law. And no doubt Joseph had memorized this so that he could go to Pilate and said, this is our law, Pilate. I've got to do it. This is what the Jews do. And you can imagine Pilate standing there saying, um, oh, uh, Mr. Secretary, who no doubt was sitting in the corner, make a note of that. This is Jewish law. Right, sir. I'll get it down. Because Pilate was always thinking ahead and thinking, well, if the high priest came later, seeking to cause a bit of trouble and said, why did you allow that dreadful man to be buried decent? Pilate would have great pleasure in going back to the priests and saying, but I thought it was your law. (laughs) 
I'm only doing what you Jews would want me to do, surely. And he knew he'd have one of a Caiaphas in company. And so he says to Joseph, yes, take the body. But who was Joseph? And why was Pilate willing to receive him in the first place? First we're told he was a highly regarded member of the council, that is the Sanhedrin, the governing body over Temple Mount. And that's probably already known to Pilate. Pilate would have known those who were rulers in the temple courts. So the high priests and the others couldn't complain if one of their own council went to Pilate. Pilate was justified in talking to them. They were men of repute, men of high standing, highly respected. So he agrees to listen to Joseph. But the other point is, of course, that normally, just as practices today, you release a body to a relative of the deceased. What connection was Joseph? Well, he must have gone along and said, I'm acting on behalf of Mary, his mother. He must have had some sort of formal piece of paper or word to say, look, I come on behalf of the mother. Can I please take the body? But of course, there is a long-standing tradition that Joseph was some relative. I mean, you all know the Glastonbury legends and Joseph of Arimathea and the Holy Grail and all that. Well, we're not going down that road. But (laughs) I think it's not unlikely that Joseph was a relative of Mary in some respect. It's been suggested that might have been a brother. More likely, I'd have thought an uncle. That next generation, an older man. Because we're told in the other Gospels that the grave that he had prepared was his own, ready for death. Now, I can tell you, that's an older man thinking that way. I must prepare for my funeral. You see these adverts for prepaid funeral plans. Well, you get to a certain age when it starts seeming a good idea, but not if you're a young man. You wouldn't want to waste time or thoughts on that. But as you get older, these things loom alive. So I think Joseph was an older man in that he had this grave already prepared for him. So the possibility of his being Mary's uncle, and therefore, of course, great uncle to Jesus, is not out of the bounds of possibility. But there's more to Joseph than that, of course. He could claim possibly to be a friend or a relative of Mary. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was also rich. And then, as now, many always can. (laughs) Pilate knew a rich man when he saw one, and he thought, well, maybe... There might be a little something by way of consideration (laughs) coming his way later. We don't know. But you can always live in hope if somebody rich comes along that there might be some gift to help smooth the way. That's the way the rich live, isn't it? By making sure that the largesse is spread around to smooth the passage. And of course, as I've said, Joseph has the advantage of having a tomb ready. And it's nearby to the cross. So Pilate can be assured that what was done would be done quickly and would be done with as little publicity as possible. That the tomb was only just round the corner from where the cross stood. And so everything could be achieved as Joseph said it must be achieved before nightfall. And so Pilate releases the body to Joseph. But there's more to be said about Joseph. 
Because it says that Joseph was one who was looking forward to the kingdom of God. Now Mark opens his gospel in Mark 1 and verse 15 with these words. Jesus speaking saying, the kingdom of God is near. That was his preaching, that was his message. So here's Joseph who says he's looking forward to the kingdom of God. Is, in other words, a believer in the message of Jesus. A believer in Jesus. He's one of a small group who lived in Jerusalem who were hidden or secret disciples. For we know of another, Nicodemus. And I'll mention him uh, a little later. They were both on the Sanhedrin. They were both on the ruling council. That very council that had called for the death of Jesus. So we want to know, don't we, why didn't they speak out earlier? Why didn't they do something? Well, we know Nicodemus tried to speak out and got shot down for his pains for even suggesting a fair hearing, let alone take a decision. And so Joseph, maybe seeing what happened, thought, well, discretion is the better part of valor. So why did they remain on the Sanhedrin? Well, maybe it was a bit like it used to be with the House of Lords. You were stuck, you know. You inherited the position and you couldn't resign. It was your birthright. It was something you possessed. And it wasn't something that you could lay down lightly. And so they found themselves between a rock and a hard place, wanting to believe in Jesus, but stuck on this council that wanted to get rid of Jesus. And so for the moment... They'd kept a low profile. And we read too that Joseph went boldly to Peter. The suggest to Pilate. The suggestion is that this wasn't in his nature. You know, it was like some of us, which were shy, retiring types, who rather than want to go ahead, were sort of quite happy to take a back seat, but suddenly found himself thrust to the front, maybe with Mary behind him, he said, Joseph, you must do something. And it's only you who can do something. Oh, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll go, I'll go. And so we read, he'd gone boldly to Pilate. This wasn't in his comfort zone, but he was doing what he knew he had to do. And he was doing something that only he could do. That's the marvellous thing. He was in the unique position to do something for Jesus in his death that nobody else could He had the tomb. He had the means. He was available. And he was willing to stick his head above the parapet. Those who call themselves disciples, those that accompanied Jesus and boldly came into Jerusalem, they were in hiding. Thank God for people like Joseph, who when the time comes are willing to do what is necessary. And here it's a decent burial before nightfall and the Sabbath. And of course, it's a Passover Sabbath, so it's a special Sabbath at that. Now what follows suggests that Joseph acted totally on his own. Well, we know that's a physical impossibility. Body hanging on a cross is a dead weight. It needs a few people, strong, armed people. So Joseph and his servants and whoever else he could corral would be needed to take that body down and carry it to the tomb. Late, decently inside, wash it down and then prepare it for burial with a linen cloth that we read he bought. Now we know from John's Gospel, and I go from the text here and I hesitate to 
leave mark, but I think it's worthwhile as we're considering the burial in its totality just to see what John's Gospel has to say. And it refers to this man Nicodemus, who's only known in John. Nobody else knows about him. Another hidden disciple. Another rich man on the Sanhedrin and presumably well known to Joseph. And so the two of them help prepare Jesus' body for burial. Wrap it in the shroud and as you wrap it, the custom was that you covered the linen with ointment and the perfume. This isn't embalming. This isn't to preserve the body. This is just to provide a pleasant odour as the body decomposes. And in John's Gospel we read that some 32 kilograms of material were used, which is a huge amount. And it suggests to me at least that this is a commercial amount, out of a commercial store. In other words, Nicodemus dealt in spices. And this is him providing the total stock of his business. But the point I want to make is that Jesus is buried in a new tomb with a royal amount of material. This is a royal burial fit for a king. He might have been mocked as a king when he was led to the crucifixion. But now in his death, he's being treated as a king. He's been buried. And this is a royal burial, new tomb, and lavish use of spices and perfumes. And these two have done their big... They might have been hidden disciples up to now. But they, and only they, have done what they could. Cometh the hour, cometh the men. They may have had faith in Jesus, but surely now... Their one thought was, well, it's all over. But the least we can do is see that Jesus is decently buried and there he has a grave where we can remember him. There's one more point. In doing all this, Joseph was making himself ritually impure by associating, working with a dead body, and you can read this in Numbers 19, he'd now be ritually impure for a week. He would have to endure ritual cleansing on the third and the seventh day, which meant no Sabbath celebrations for him. So more of a personal sacrifice for Joseph and if you want to include Nicodemus as well. They were both willing to forego that for the sake of their Lord. What a sacrifice that they were willing to give in order that Jesus might be dealt with appropriately. And rightly. Well, we may not be rich and influential like these gentlemen, but we have our unique talents and we have our unique opportunities too to share our faith. Maybe like Joseph, we prefer to keep our head below the parapet. I don't know your circumstances, but I know what it was like for me when I was at work. You know, it wasn't always the opportunity to proclaim your Christian belief. You had to pick your moments, you had to pick the people, you had to pick the opportunities. Not always best possible, and we know how these days even the wearing of a cross can be controversial. So it's not easy. We have to have sympathy for the likes of Joseph. Maybe too, like Joseph, our minds become full of doubts when things go horribly wrong, when disaster strikes. Where is our faith then? I'm just reflecting on this and the way it's possible within my own family that has happened. 
that untimely deaths has destroyed faith. It may be my father, maybe my grandfather, as I look back and see what happened and the way they lived lives afterwards. And you think, well, maybe that was it that caused that change of heart and change of direction and their lives altered because of personal tragedy within the family. They hadn't expected such an ignoble death for Jesus. It's quite possible that any faith they'd had had been totally obliterated. They were just decent men doing what they could. But whatever their state of mind, whatever their state of faith, they did what they and only they could do. And we need to give thanks to God for them. Because there was nobody else to do it. We couldn't count on the disciples. They were in hiding for fear of their lives. All the usual heroes had gone. It was left to the unsung to do what was necessary. And we read then, at a suitable distance, Mark tells us that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph or Joseph's different translations, saw where the body was buried. For the moment, their role is totally passive. The ladies know their place. But wait for next week <laughs> when the ladies come into their own and you will celebrate the glorious resurrection and the witness of those watching ladies. And so we have the two necessary ingredients for that proclamation for next week. The death and the burial of Jesus. We know Jesus was dead and we know where he was buried. There could be no mistake on either point. Too many people involved in it all. And we have the witness of the ladies as well, quietly watching at a distance. The eleven from Galilee, well, as I say, they're in hiding. They played no part. We thank God for those who did. We thank God for the way in which his wonderful purposes were achieved through two very unlikely people. But in the end, they're the names that we ought to remember and glorify. Let's pray together. Lord our Father, we thank you for the account of the burial of Jesus. And particularly we thank you for the faithfulness of Joseph. Maybe very much against his nature to be seen and to be numbered and named. And so we thank you for his willingness to be used in this way. To give up the tomb that he'd specially prepared for himself. To go boldly to Pilate. To make himself rich, ritually impure. For the sake of seeing that Jesus was decently buried. We give thanks for those who quietly go about their Christian work and witness. Not seeking any glory. Just to do your will. In thanks to Jesus our Lord we pray. Amen.